Hello, traders and friends. Welcome to the Are You Green podcast weekend edition. I'm Elisa Levinson, and this is part two about the dot-com bubble burst. Yes, I said part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, you can go back and listen to it now. It's just a few episodes ago. It should be right there wherever you listen to your podcasts. And it's called Weekend Edition, What Caused the Dot-Com Bubble? I'm excited to continue to share my economics nerdum with you all. We have five economic stages of what defines a bubble. The definition is in part one, and that's where we saw stage one, displacement, stage two, the boom, and stage three, euphoria. Today, we're gonna go over the last two stages of the bubble, why and how the bubble burst. We're gonna look at a couple of companies, most notably Mark Cuban, And finally, we're going to review what to look for in new IPOs. I've got a three-step checklist for you and how to be aware of another bubble forming and protect yourself as an individual investor. So let's get right to it. It's 1999. In February 1999, President Bill Clinton was acquitted from his impeachment trial. So that's where we are in history. He is still president at this time. As the personal computer is continuing to become more and more popular, these dot-com companies are still continuing to grow way beyond their actual value. In March 1999, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was over 10,000 for the first time. To give you some context, in 1993, where we started in part one at the beginning of the bubble, the average for the Dow Industrial was 3,524, and in 1999, it was 10,481. That's over 195% gain in just six years. To look at now, the last six years currently, which by the way, we've had a great economic growth from 2014 to 2020, it rose a little above 60%. So thinking about 195%, that's just insane growth. An unprecedented amount of personal investing occurred during this boom, and there are plenty of stories of people quitting their full-time jobs to trade on the financial market. It's kind of interesting as day trading and trading nowadays with new brokers like Robinhood has created another new generation of traders. Anyways, last episode, we talked about some of these insane IPOs, and Broadcast.com was no different. In 1998, it rose over 250% that day it went public. The company had lost $16 million in 1998, and yet now it had an evaluation of $1 billion. In April 1st, 1999, an offer came from Yahoo to buy the stock, and that was finalized in July 1999. Mark Cuban, along with his other partners, sold Broadcast.com for $5.7 billion. The timing was incredible, and Mark saw the writing on the wall because his evaluation and Yahoo's evaluation was crazy at the time. Unfortunately, Mark's agreement with Yahoo and security rules prohibited any short dealing by an insider who suspects the stock will drop. So what could he do to protect his investment? Because now he had billions of dollars in a company that he was pretty sure was going to be dropping. 
typically in an acquisition, no such short bets or anything like that directly against the stock or sales are allowed for months and months. And in his case, he had a lockup of three years. So he had to find another solution. He looked at index funds. However, index funds that included more than 5% of Yahoo stock were also ruled out. But Mark found one with almost all of its money in dot-com companies, which he felt like would fall with Yahoo. And it had a little bit of Yahoo, but less than that 5%. Mark was allowed to short this, although the derivatives are a little bit more complicated. But when the index fell, Mark would make that profit and that would offset his losses. He even talked about it years later. After we sold Broadcast.com, I hedged my stock with synthetic indexes in case the market cratered in the six months before I could hedge my actual Yahoo shares. It cost me $20 million, but I protected what I had. Todd Wagner and I had a credo. Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. What he's basically saying there is he did take a loss on the sale, but he ended up obviously ahead. Not only did he do this through shorting synthetic indexes, but he also played the options game really well. And that was a huge part of protecting his capital because options allowed him to lose that, you know, $20 million and he got to keep the billions. Other owners of the dot-com companies made similar moves because after those companies went public, they also had a lockup on their shares. So they took to options as well. At the end of 1999, we had the Y2K problem, where people were concerned that new computer systems that they had all just implemented and started to rely on, these networks, they were worried, would all malfunction due to the date change from 1999 to 2000. Looking back now, we all know that this was crazy and there really was no impact. So in January, when these companies survived Y2K, I remember it was a huge cultural thing, I survived Y2K, it was becoming evident to the Federal Reserve that they needed to raise interest rates and that might be time for this bubble to burst. At the height of the bubble was the AOL Time Warner mega merger in January 2000, and that would become the biggest merger fail in history. That brings us to stage four, profit taking. This is the stage where smart money starts to take their profits. Smart money is a term that refers to the capital that is controlled by institutional investors, market mavens, central banks, funds, and other financial professionals. These professionals started to see the same signs as the Federal Reserve, and they know that interest rates are going to be raised, so they start to sell and take their profits. And in February 2000, the Fed made the official announcement that they would be raising interest rates, and in March 2000, the Nasdaq hit a peak. At that point, the next few events were critical. First, on March 13, 2000, Japan had officially entered a recession. This triggered a global sell-off, and that really hit the tech stocks more than anything else. And these internet companies, meanwhile, were only spending the money they had and not making any profits. The companies themselves were made up mostly of debt. And with these interest rates rising, how could they afford not to go into bankruptcy? On March 20th, 2000, Barron's featured a cover article titled, Burning Up, Warning, Internet Companies Are Running Out of Cash Fast, which predicted the imminent bankruptcy of many internet companies. 
And then interest rates went up and we can finally enter stage five. Panic! This can happen with a minor event and it causes a rapid escalation of investors who are overwhelmed with supply. And since there's no demand, the price just continues to drop and then they continue to try to liquidate as soon as possible. We saw this in April when the NASDAQ fell 25% in one week. And by November 2000, we saw some of these companies start to go out of business completely. Like Pets.com. Remember that sock puppet advertisement? Of course you do because they blasted the advertisement everywhere when the company really had nothing else going for it. Only nine months after their IPO, they were completely out of business. By this time, most internet stocks had declined in value by 75% from their highs. This wiped out $1.75 trillion in value from the market. It's huge. This only continued as more companies went bankrupt or were investigated for fraud or accounting scandals like the Enron scandal in October 2001. And then, of course, September 11th, 2001, and it was officially a crash. It would take 15 years for the NASDAQ to regain this dot-com peak, which it finally did on April 23rd, 2015. So what can you do today to protect yourself as an individual investor? And how can you identify the safety of an IPO? First, you want to diversify your investment portfolio. In 1998, many people did the opposite. They took shares from other stocks or took money out of bonds and they sold so that they could then put the money in to buy these hot, exciting dot-com stocks. That was a mistake. Warren Buffett talks about diversification all the time, saying that you should never put all of your money in one farm. Secondly, you need to make sure that you're doing your own research and rising above these trends. Do not act like a sheep and just follow what everyone else is doing. Just because you see these IPOs going crazy does not mean that you should get in on it. You should really be doing your own individual research. And with all of the financial statements, information, and more available on the internet today, this should be easy, guys. So that brings us to investing safely with IPOs. Keep in mind that many investors caution anyone from buying any IPO. In Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, he basically says that these companies are trying to raise as much money as possible. So getting involved at this point already means that you're buying at a premium. He advises you to wait. And that's a great book, by the way, especially if you're looking into more value stocks. And that relates to my first IPO tip. I've got three for you guys. The first one is to wait until the lockup period ends because that will mean that there are more people selling than buying. So that would be a good time to buy yourself as opposed to when the IPO is initially released where essentially there are no sellers. So you have zero upper hand as a buyer and you're at mercy of the market. You need to be in situations as an investor where you can be in control as much as possible. The second is to look into the company's business model. 
How are they going to be profitable? And what is that business model dependent on? For example, DoorDash, that's D-A-S-H, that IPO has been very popular. What are they dependent on? Well, they're dependent on people continuing to order food at home. So you have to think, is this trend going to continue? What happens when the pandemic ends? Will people want to continue ordering food at home? Some people are arguing yes, because now it's now they understand the technology, they understand the ease. Some people who get delivery, it takes forever. There's tons of fees attached. It's way too expensive. The food comes, it's all mushed up, and they're just dying to go back into those restaurants. So you have to look at not only how the business is going to be profitable, but what external factors are going to be dependent on the business succeeding. And most importantly, you also need to look if they have anything proprietary. I mean, yes, DoorDash does have software that allows people to order online, but other companies have that software. Not only do other companies have that software, but other companies are processing a lot more orders, like Uber, for example. Uber is a much better buy, in my opinion, because not only do they have the food ordering model, but they also have the car ordering service. So no matter what type of economy we're in, whether people are going out again or staying in, I think Uber has set themselves up for success. And the last step, number three, is thinking about the worst case scenario. Will your investment be okay if this stock drops 50%? How much do you need that money? Will you need to panic sell in order to have access to that cash? You need to make sure that you're prepared for these events and prepared to possibly ride them out. The panic selling is what's gonna get you in trouble. As I say all the time on the Are You Green podcast, do not be one of these fools. Do not panic sell. You need to really plan your trade. So thank you so much for tuning in and learning all about the dot-com bubble. On part one, we learned about the background, how it came to be, and the importance of interest rates. And that's what you need to focus on moving forward. You need to look at what the Federal Reserve is saying about the economy to help protect your own investments. And then you need to look at those investments and make sure that your portfolio is diversified in case one industry has some type of issue. We saw that with the COVID crash with the restaurants and hospitality. Hopefully people who invested in those companies were able to hold on to their stocks and they had other investments in their portfolio that they could then see rise out of that. And again, we will, I think, see those restaurants and hospitality stocks revive in the next upcoming years. So that's why on the Are You Green podcast, I do talk a lot about the Federal Reserve. I would absolutely recommend you to listen to the episode. Um, I think it was on Thursday. It's called Federal Reserve Update Explained. And that's really important because I go over the different scenarios that the Federal Reserve talked about might happen in 2021. And the more informed you are, the better you can plan. And the better you can plan your trade, the better you can trade your plan. 
Thanks again for tuning in. Be sure to follow and stay updated on the Are You Green podcast, a daily review of the New York Stock Exchange with top news, top movers, and insights into my personal swing trading. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a great holiday. Monday, January 18th is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a federal holiday, so the stock markets are closed. So take that time off, spend some time with your family, or even take the time to research into your investments. And I'll see you on Tuesday.